I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. Thank you for coming. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Uh, I should say that you all, most of you have these question cards, and in the semi-darkness of the theater, it's helpful when you've written out a question to come up to the front for Kevin Kelly and me to look at to later address the speaker with. Uh, it's helpful if you wave it so that the guys in the yellow hats can see it, come collect it, and bring it up. And you know, write questions anytime during the talk, during the Q&A. Uh, that's the interactive part. Now, the Long Now Foundation is called the Long Now because we have in mind the next 10,000 years and the last 10,000 years. And Peter Schwartz here is the one who came up with that number because 10,000 years ago, there was a biotech revolution uh, having to do with mainly plants and then animals that we eat and use. You know, we started genetic modification, genetic engineering in a big way and humanity took a swerve that it's still getting used to. And then about 150 years, another biotech revolution happened with biomedicine, and humans started to be able to control their health, be able to control their birth rate, and then we get to the 21st century, which is regarded by many as the century of biology, which to a large extent means the century of biotechnology. And so these revolutions that we've seen seem to be on a kind of a biotech Moore's law of getting more and more frequent and happening now in one lifetime instead of it a millennia at a time. And the current acceleration of genetic science and genetic engineering uh, is, as often the case, being carried by very sharp individuals, scientists who find the right problems, find the right people to work with, find the right funding, and swarm ahead. And really the exemplary case of that these days is Craig Venter. Please welcome him. Thank you, Stuart. It's uh, certainly nice to be here with the, uh, the Long Now Foundation taking a, uh, a long view, uh, hopefully uh, forward with, uh, with humankind. I think it's very much an open question, but uh, we're trying to see if we can change some of the equations uh, maybe to help that process uh, uh, along. I'm going to talk about two different phases of uh, information tonight. Uh, the first phase is gathering the information. Uh, I actually refer to it in, in my case as reading the genetic code. And then I'll turn to how now we're using that information to change evolution, to change biology, to change hopefully some parts of society uh, with writing the genetic code. And I'll talk about the early steps of that. Uh, all this has happened in a pretty short uh, period of time. 
Uh, we sequenced the first genome of a living species, uh, Haemophilus influenzae, in 1995. Before then, we developed techniques for scaling up uh, gene discovery, but we've only had uh, complete genomes of living organisms for a relatively short period of time. Uh, it's changing our view of looking at biology. Uh, we did two genomes in 1995, and I'll talk about the second one in the later phases of this. Uh, had very different size genomes, very different characteristics. Uh, but after those first two uh, that we had to fund ourselves, we started getting a lot of uh, uh, government funding to scale up uh, the process. Uh, we got uh, uh, funding to do almost every major human pathogen. Uh, we moved into plants, uh, then simple animals, uh, then more complex ones such as uh, fruit flies uh, and people. The big change in technology after 1995 came surprisingly only uh, four to five years later uh, with the fruit fly genome. Uh, Haemophilus was 1.8 million letters of genetic code, uh, Drosophila is 180 million, and they were both done in the same uh, four-month time period. Uh, and nine months later, we had uh, the three billion letter uh, uh, first draft of the human genome. Uh, computational aspects were very important. We actually had to build the third largest computer in the world uh, to do this calculation. Uh, now it's not so hard to do with uh, uh, much more standard computers. Uh, one and a half teraops in 1999 was a huge computer. Uh, today uh, we have things 10, 20, 30, and 100 times uh, that, that size. Just this last year we published uh, the first complete human genome. Uh, this was the diploid genome, so it had both sets of chromosomes uh, from, uh, from both parents. What was done in 2000 and 2001 uh, ended up being only half the job. Uh, the public effort uh, only got it half right uh, because they set out to only do half, thinking the other half would be easily discernible. Uh, the project at Solera actually uh, tried to do the complete genome but we made the mistake of overreaching. We tried to do the genome of five individuals. Uh, it was three women, uh, three men and two women. No, it was three women and two men. Um, uh, sounds like a San Francisco movie. Um, uh, but uh, because of the diversity, when, when we assembled uh, the genome, we, we ended up subtracting out all the major variation between them. So the message, and many of you will remember it, 2000, 2001, is we all have the same set of genes, and we all differ from each other only in one out of a thousand letters of genetic code. Uh, and this started all kinds of people down certain tracks. We have a pretty large industry now just to measure uh, those one out of a thousand differences. Uh, but it turns out we're all one to three percent different from each other. Uh, so it's a much greater variation uh, than we imagined. To put that in context, we thought we differed from chimpanzees only by 1.27%. Uh, so you're probably hoping that number changed as well. Uh, uh, or we really have some explaining to do about evolution. Um, it turns out we're 4 to 5% uh, different from uh, chimps. 
Uh, and so this, this individual variation w was totally missed. Uh, the two sets of chromosomes that each of you have, uh, each of those uh, sets of chromosomes, uh, they don't necessarily have the same gene that the other uh, pair has. Uh, for example, there's a major gene associated with detoxifying environmental toxins that of the Caucasian population, uh, a third uh, have no copies of this gene, another third have one copy, uh, and another third have two copies. But even when you have two copies, there's major variation in these. So it's hard to find two of us with the exact same uh, genetic code uh, and we have a lot of complexity. I think it's important that we know it now because it means we can move towards uh, getting uh, the right answers. Uh, in this first genome, uh, almost half the genes had a major uh, variant in them, uh, and this certainly is going to confound anybody who was hoping to get simple interpretations out of the human genetic code. So we, we have all kinds of companies promising that now for $1,000. Uh, but it's only a partial peak uh, at what might be there. 75% uh, of the letters of genetic code that are variant between any two of us uh, didn't show up in the uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms uh, that people were measuring. So we're scaling up now to do 10,000 human genomes over the next decade. Uh, hopefully it won't take 10,000 years, Stuart, but uh, maybe only 10 and we will finally uh, have the first chance to understand what's genetic, what's nature, and what's nurture. Uh, not only with the genetic code, but we're trying to collect intense, uh, extensive phenotypic information on all these individuals uh, that we're going to be sequencing. Uh, and that's a much greater challenge uh, when you think about all the information that might describe you or your lives uh, how you look, uh, how you think, uh, your body structure, your organ structure, your metabolism, uh, all those things uh, differ dramatically uh, with each of us. And trying to describe that uh, makes sequencing the genome uh, look like uh, the easy part. Uh, we published our data in the public access of uh, Journal of Biology. You can download this 300 megabyte file if you want to. It's a it's a zoomable version of the human genome that shows uh, the types and, and uh, uh, extent of human uh, variation. And hopefully in a short time, you'll be able to get the map of your genome this way. Uh, working with the XPRIZE Foundation, we now have a $10 million prize uh, for whoever gets the technology going to the extent that we can sequence an individual genome for $1,000 in a very short period of time. So. Uh, uh, we're hopeful that we'll be giving out that $10 million in the next five years. If you're looking for a little spare change, you might try inventing uh, something worthwhile. Um, we're, we're releasing a new browser uh, for the genome that allows it to uh, uh, be looked at down to uh, the, the sequence file level uh, as people, for example, get uh, data from 23andMe or other places. They can look at actually a complete genome to try and put it in some kind of context uh, and find out how much is missing uh, from those early uh, tests. Now, when we finished sequencing the human genome, uh, many people were hoping I would retire, uh, but instead 
uh, we, we looked around for what we thought were the most important projects in science uh, to do, particularly with what the technology that we developed for reading the genetic code could try and tackle. And it was clear to us that trying to look at the environment, uh, not only the extensive environment around us that helps influence our genes, but the broader environment, uh, to see if we could use DNA sequence as the new tool to see uh, who we were sharing the planet with. Uh, there's been this statistic for a long time that each milliliter of seawater has a million bacteria and 10 million viruses, uh, but nobody really knew uh, what that meant and whether there was any diversity in that. And so we decided to do an experiment in the uh, Sargasso Sea, just taking a barrel of seawater, filtering out all the organisms in it, isolating the DNA from them en masse and sequencing it. And just from one uh, a barrel of water, uh, we stopped sequencing after we had uh, close to 1.4 million new genes. Uh, maybe it's 40,000 new species that had never been seen before. Uh, so the technique obviously worked because, in fact, people thought we'd find little or no life uh, in their Sargasso Sea because it was supposed to be a desert uh, with no nutrients in it. Uh, and I'll show you why and how these organisms survived in a minute. But we decided to look further and we started the Sorcerer 2 expedition. Uh, I'd always been looking for an excuse to sail around the world on, on my own vessel. Um, and so we decided we would follow great scientific expeditions such as the Challenger expedition and sail around the world taking samples every 200 miles and sequencing everything we could find uh, to see if we could generate a different view of life. Uh, and we were absolutely stunned with what we found, and that was a special issue of PLOS that was published last year. This is the route that we followed. Uh, as with the Challenger expedition, we started in Halifax, uh, went down the eastern uh, seaboard uh, into the Caribbean Sea, uh, then down between Mexico and Cuba to the Panama Canal, uh, through the Panama Canal and uh, down to uh, first Cocos Island uh, and then to the Galapagos. And, and that's the, uh, the dot you see here in blue. That's what uh, was covered in the special issue of PLOS uh, of biology. Um, and that covered over six million new genes, more than doubling the number uh, of genes known from all science uh, up to that point. And we've now been analyzing the samples uh, from the rest of the globe. Uh, after Galapagos, we left and uh, sailed uh, to the Marquesias, uh, where we were promptly arrested. Um, because there was a, a debate between the French government and the French Polynesian government as who had rights over the microbes that are there. And you, you, you may not understand this, but uh, I, this is, this is a, a, a physical map. If you look at a political map, in the Caribbean Sea, for example, there's no international waters. Every drop of water is claimed by one or more countries, and you need permission from them to take a scientific sample. They're, they're, it's okay to fish in most of those places. You can, uh, you know, shoot marine mammals. You can do whatever you want. But if you're asking scientific questions, it's considered extremely dangerous, um, uh, and you can get arrested for it. Um, uh, in fact, when the organisms in the ocean are out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, uh, they're in international waters, and they belong to nobody or to everybody. 
as soon as the one knot current that goes across the Pacific carries them into French Polynesia, uh, all those microbes instantly become French genetic heritage. Uh, and, uh, and they're willing to defend it um, uh, to, to the extreme. Um, we, we finally got out of there and took samples and spent some time in Australia, then went across the Indian Ocean. Uh, we got halfway across and we stopped in uh, uh, Chagos Island, uh, which is near uh, where uh, our country has a, a B-52 air base, and we were rusted again uh, by the British this time because they were worried we would take uh, uh, samples and understand uh, science in that water. Um, so science is something and organisms that are, are greatly protected around the world, and uh, uh, to be able to publish this data in the public databases, we had to put uh, geographic uh, GPS coordinates on every uh, DNA sequence. Uh, so, for example, uh, uh, if somebody makes a discovery using the sequences that we found in Australia uh, and you want to commercialize those, you have to contact the Australian government and negotiate something. It's not clear what. Um, so science is it's much more complicated today, but the, the experiments were very simple. We just simply filtered seawater through different sized filters. We could then just take those filters, put them in the freezer. Uh, when we got into a port, uh, we put them in a FedEx package with some dry ice and send them back to the lab in, in Rockville, Maryland, where all the DNA was isolated at once from them uh, and sequenced and then reconstructed in the computer. And when we reconstructed it, uh, we were amazed with what we found. Uh, for example, every 200 miles, 85% of the sequences in the organisms are unique. Uh, the ocean's not a giant homogeneous mixture. Uh, samples that we've taken off of San Francisco Bay uh, will be very different than the ones off of uh, uh, Los Angeles and off of uh, Seattle and Oregon. Uh, in fact, if you look at the, so the red or the dark here, if you're colorblind, is uh, warm water. Uh, the blue or light colors is uh, cold water. And even the 3% of sequences that assemble across uh, more than one site, they make an absolute distinction between uh, warm and cold water. And some of these change on an annual uh, basis uh, with weather. Uh, other things that affect it are sunlight, but, uh, and nutrients, uh, but we can tell simply from a sample of seawater, uh, looking at the DNA in that water, uh, where uh, that water came from in the world. Um, and for example, with all the ships that come and go from San Francisco Bay, if a tanker comes in, offloads its cargo, it fills up its hold with uh, seawater and will go to its next port dump all that seawater uh, and take on new cargo. So look at all the ships that come and go from San Francisco Bay uh, each day uh, and imagine with a million bacteria and 10 million viruses per milliliter how these environments are constantly being challenged and shifted. One of the biggest discoveries we made early on uh, was that these uh, organisms we discovered in the ocean had photoreceptors. Uh, molecules very similar to our own visual pigments uh, and almost every one in the top uh, parts of the ocean have these uh, photoreceptors. The blue segment at the bottom of the slide is our prior knowledge of photoreceptors uh, before this expedition. 
Uh, and these are very deep branching, a lot of diversity. So instead of being a rare gene family, uh, just affecting our visual uh, acuity, uh, it affects much of uh, life on the planet. Uh, we can line up all these proteins. Uh, this was early on when we only had a couple thousand of them. And what, why do this? Uh, it turns out there's a single amino acid residue that determines the wavelength of light that these receptors see. So then that allows us to ask some unique questions. Do we see any association with different geographic regions uh, with the wavelength of light? And we're quite surprised, in fact, to see uh, something that makes sense, but we nobody predicted it ahead of time. Uh, for example, the Sargasso Sea, it's a deep indigo blue. The organisms that are there, uh, the photoreceptors see blue light. Uh, you get into coastal waters where there's a lot of chlorophyll, they see primarily green light. You get into fresh water like the Panama Canal, they see entirely green light. Uh, so there's only one letter of the genetic code that is needed to change, to change the wavelength of light by changing this amino acid residue. And even though there's a large abundance of organisms uh, traversing these waters, the ones that survive and grow are the ones uh, that can get their energy uh, directly from the sun. And last year there was a study from the Swedish group showing, in fact, these organisms grow directly on sunlight. This is not photosynthesis. This is the same biological mechanisms that you're seeing the slide with right now. You're, you're uh, uh, having light hit these receptors and they transport ions across the membrane. Well, these microorganisms that's how they generate their energy in a low-nutrient environment. So in fact, instead of low nutrients indicating a sparsity of life, uh, this was some of the highest density of life anywhere that we'd seen uh, because they have these mechanisms of getting energy straight from sunlight. The other thing that we found uh, is where people thought there was a single organism, we found evidence for thousands. Uh, all related in the sense they have similar sets of genes, similar gene order, uh, but uh, hardly a, a single one. Each one of these little bars you see on here represents uh, 900 base pairs of uh, genetic code. Uh, one of the things we can do is take a slice out of this data anywhere and create uh, trees to look at the relationships between these, uh, uh, these very closely related organisms. Uh, they're color-coded by site, uh, so we can look at things like Atlantic Ocean versus the Pacific Ocean. But the bottom, to me, is the most exciting. When you look at recent evolution, there's been a switch between blue and green light for these photoreceptors of four different times. So you can see at such selective pressure, you get a mutation and you switch from blue to green and you're in coastal waters, obviously you're going to thrive. Uh, if you switch from blue to green out in the middle of the ocean, uh, you probably won't. Uh, you can ask basically any question of this data uh, in a similar uh, fashion. There's in fact a lot of questions. How, how much novelty is there with all these new discoveries that have been doubling the number of uh, all genes known to science? Uh, are they like the photoreceptors, just new members of known gene families? Uh, or are we really making new discoveries? And if we're making new discoveries, What's the pace of these uh, discoveries? Uh, when we looked at the data set initially, we were quite shocked to find that uh, our database just between Halifax and the Galapagos was twice the size of all the public databases in terms of gene content. Uh, 
And so we did a, a calculation by comparing all those data to each other. It was about a million CPU hours. And we found out uh, thus far in the data set there was maybe 50,000 major gene families. Well, we only have 22 to 23,000 genes, maybe uh, 14 or 15,000 gene families. So even all of human biology represents only a subset of this data. Uh, but if we look at this as a, as a curve, instead of the long now, we have a long tail that basically goes out uh, approaching infinity right now with new discoveries and new gene families, with the exception of the animal world. So just to remind people, uh, we're just in, in one part of uh, uh, evolution, uh, even though the tree model doesn't really hold, uh, it's useful for these kinds of diagrams. When we look at our reading the genetic code in mammals, uh, it's basically been saturated. So sequencing another mammalian genome, your favorite pet, the species down the street, whatever, you're not going to discover any new genes. You might discover some unique combinations uh, or uh, spelling of those genes, but we pretty much saturated the mammalian part of, of the tree. But if we look at bacteria and archaea, we're in a linear phase of discovery. Uh, we don't really know where we are, we just know it's linear. Uh, our, our thinking is that we're in the earliest phases of this, of just a few percent at most, which means uh, anybody can just go out to the, the bay or go across to the uh, Pacific, uh, take a sample of seawater uh, and make uh, tens of thousands of species discoveries, uh, millions of gene discoveries, uh, et cetera. Uh, we, we first actually applied these techniques to the human, uh, looking at the bacteria that are associated with us. So the microbiome is your collection of, of microbes. Uh, not all of you have all these cavities, but you know, um, this is no time for cavity jealousy or anything, but uh, we, we can isolate uh, organisms uh, from these different cavities. And for example, uh, uh, look at the person next to you and you know, maybe, maybe you see them as, as having uh, thousands of species in their mouth right now, uh, or maybe you can taste your own species. Um, uh, on the order of four million genes of uh, uh, foreign species in your, uh, in your mouth, uh, in your intestinal tract, uh, if you have those other parts, they, you have those as well. Uh, so we, we have more bacterial cells associated with us than we have human cells. Uh, and it turns out they affect our physiology in uh, some pretty interesting ways. Uh, there's a company in uh, North Carolina called Metabolomics that's uh, using high-throughput mass spectrometry to look at all the chemicals in the bloodstream. And they've worked out that we as a species can make, maybe make around 2,400 chemicals. Uh, if you look in the bloodstream of anybody, for example, after they've had a meal, uh, easily find uh, uh, about 60% of what's there is made uh, by our own bodies. Uh, about 30% are just uh, chemicals that came out of what we eat. You know, so this notion you are what you eat is partly right. But 10% are bacterial metabolites. So in fact, partly we are what we feed our bacteria and what they give us. But we're dealing at any one time with hundreds to thousands of foreign chemicals circulating in our bloodstream. 
uh, not to mention uh, what we add uh, directly by taking uh, pharmaceutics or other things. Uh, and we have no idea the impact of these on physiology uh, because, in fact, we didn't even know they were there before. So we're looking at the complexity of the human genome and all the variations there uh, and what's in our bloodstream. And if we did this test on everybody in this room, we'd get a different answer uh, uh, for everybody based on what, what you ate uh, and also the uniqueness of the bacteria uh, in your own guts and your mouth. Uh, this affects our chemical milieu. This is part of the environment uh, that affects us. We're also sequencing uh, the air genome. Uh, so, for example, in a room this size, uh, sitting here for an hour, uh, you would absorb maybe 10,000 uh, different bacteria and maybe 10 times that in viruses in an hour. Uh, if you go outside, it's twice that much, so you're actually safer in here right now. <laughs> Uh, depending on who you're sitting next to again uh, and what they're exhaling and inhaling. Uh, so we live in a bacterial milieu. If you're going through the water, you're surrounded by bacteria. So if you're out swimming and you swallow a mouthful of seawater, uh, you've just swallowed uh, millions and millions of bacteria and viruses. The air we breathe, the soil, uh, our own skin, our own cavities. So we are as much dependent on bacterial metabolism uh, as human metabolism. We've been collecting all these genes, all this information, uh, trying to understand the complexity, and we decided one way to try and understand the complexity was to try and mimic it. Uh, this is standard in chemistry uh, to prove that you have the structure that you think you have, you remake uh, that compound. Uh, we decided to try and do this uh, with uh, the genetic code, uh, starting with some pretty uh, simple organisms. The second organism that was sequenced in 90, 1995 was uh, Mycoplasma genitalium. This is its genome, at least its uh, depiction of it. Uh, very much unlike our genome, so it has a little over 500 genes in contrast to our 22,000. Uh, we have gaps in our genetic code with no genes that are much larger than this entire genetic code. So bacterial genomes, you can see these bars represent genes, have very little intergenic space. Uh, this is still the smallest genome uh, of a self-replicating organism. Uh, so it'll grow on its own in the lab. They're smaller genomes, but they're dependent on having a symbiote uh, organism uh, for its growth, uh, so it's not clear whether they're extension of the viral world or just truly simple organisms that are dependent on others. And we just ask simple questions. If one cell needs 1,800 genes to live and this one needs uh, 500, uh, is this actually the minimal set? Can we define life in molecular terms uh, based on the genetic code? And so we set out to try and knock out genes in this genome to see if we could get down to a smaller number. So every place you see one of these small triangles is where a transposon, which is a, just a piece of DNA, very much like a small virus, that can randomly insert anywhere in the genetic code. Then we select for living cells. So only genes that are not essential can tolerate transposons going into them. So this is very much a negative map. 
you can see some genes can take large numbers of transposons. But keep in mind, these experiments only done one uh, gene at a time. Uh, and we got to a number of around 100 genes that we could knock out. But we doubted whether if we knocked all 100 out that we could get to a living cell. Uh, in fact, if we look at a metabolic map of the simplest of organisms, uh, it may look complex, but this is remarkably simple from looking at any one of uh, cells in the human body. Uh, and here's all, if all the different genes that could be knocked out would knock out a lot of metabolic pathways, uh, probably not resulting in a living cell. So we decided the only way forward was to actually make chemically in the lab this chromosome so we could alter its gene composition. Uh, and that's how the whole notion of synthetic genomics uh, was born uh, with that uh, relatively simple uh, notion. So we start out with two primary questions. Can the chemistry actually permit making these incredibly large biological molecules accurately in the lab? And if we make it, what can you do with it? Uh, DNA is an inert chemical. Uh, can we actually boot it up uh, into a living cell? Uh, th this is comparing the two areas. So the red line here is reading the genetic code, uh, and the blue line is our ability to synthesize DNA. It's actually five orders of magnitude uh, slower right now uh, for writing the, the genetic code than it is reading it. Uh, but this is changing exponentially, uh, basically just over uh, the last few months. Uh, and I think writing the genetic code will soon catch up with our pace of reading it, even though it's still uh, changing. Now, we thought this would be relatively simple. So there's machines called DNA synthesizers that can make very short stretches of DNA called oligonucleotides. We make pieces that are about 50 letters long, uh, and we thought if we just make a number of pieces and they overlap each other, that they would just all go together and we could make a larger piece of DNA. It turns out you can, but the process with these machines for synthesizing DNA is very inaccurate. Uh, it's a degenerative process, so the longer you make the piece of DNA, uh, the more errors there are with it. Uh, so we set out to do an experiment trying to make the PhiX174 genome. Um, PhiX174, for those of you who don't know, was, is a, a bacteriophage. It's a virus that kills uh, bacteria, particularly E. coli. And it was one of the first viruses that was extensively studied. In fact, it was the uh, first uh, actual genome of any type uh, that was done uh, by Fred Sanger. We chose this because, in fact, its genome uh, is uh, very intolerant of changes. Uh, if you change the genetic code, uh, the virus uh, cannot uh, reproduce. So we developed some new techniques for actually accurately writing the genetic code where we can repair the errors in real time as we're making it. And for us, even though there had been uh, an attempt uh, by another group to make the poliovirus, uh, which was slightly larger than this, uh, it only had one ten-thousandth of the activity. Uh, because of all these errors in making the genetic code. Uh, we went from the genetic code in the computer, uh, designing uh, the pieces so that they would go together appropriately, uh, use this new process for error correction, 
and we ended up with a piece of DNA exactly the right length, and we, when we sequenced it, it was exactly uh, what we uh, had designed and were trying to make. The exciting part was we took this piece of DNA and inserted it into the bacteria E. coli, uh, and what had happened was uh, E. coli uh, recognized this as a piece of software uh, and started making uh, viral particles. Uh, and uh, true to form in nature, um, uh, when the viral particles were released from the cell, they turned around and killed the bacteria uh, that had made it. Uh, so th this is a uh, process we see all the time in nature. Uh, I was just speaking to oil executives, and I said they clearly understood that process. Um, uh, but, but this was pretty exciting of just taking a, a piece of DNA and having it activated making viral particles, so we view this as the software actually building its own hardware. Uh, and th this is an important concept as we're trying to go forward uh, in this field, that even most people that are working in this area have not truly uh, grasped uh, the implications of this, that we don't have to design life from scratch, uh, we just have to design uh, the software appropriately. Uh, in fact, we've gone to scale this up. Uh, our plan was to make pieces that were viral-sized pieces that we would then put together uh, to make an intact uh, chromosome. Uh, we look for a number of ways to do this. We'd been working on it uh, for over uh, uh, four years. And there's a process in nature called homologous recombination. Uh, this is the paper that you might have read about that we just published where we, in fact, made this entire chromosome. It's the largest uh, man-made uh, molecule of a defined uh, structure. Uh, to print it out uh, one letter at a time at 10 font with no spaces, it takes 142 pages uh, just to print uh, out uh, the, the letter code for this structure. Uh, it's 582,970 uh, base pairs or letters of genetic code and it's over 300 million uh, molecular weight. Uh, so the, the process that we used was uh, not as simple as just making pieces go together, but it, it's close to that. Uh, but it started with the right design, and design now is a key part of biology. In fact, before we uh, started even the design phase, we had to go back and resequence the entire genome because the standard in 1995 was roughly one error per 10,000 letters of genetic code. Nobody thought about when reading the genetic code, even with that seemingly accurate uh, uh, error code, that anybody would be using those sequences to reproduce the organisms to actually write the genetic code. And if you're starting with the genetic code in the computer, you can only make things as accurate as the information you're starting with. So we went back and sequenced the genome all over again uh, and found 30 errors, uh, which was the standard uh, for where it should have been. Uh, but we know with those 30 errors, if we made uh, this chromosome based on uh, the initial sequence, uh, it would never have uh, been able to be uh, booted up. So we start with this digital information and we design the pieces, thinking that we're now breaking this 580,000 piece into 50 base pair segments. Uh, the 50 base pair segments have to be designed so they overlap with their neighbor. 
uh, and we started off by making pieces on the order of five to seven KB, uh, five to seven thousand base pairs that each had to be designed so when they lined up with their neighbor, uh, they would overlap. Uh, we designed some other unique elements into it. Um, you might be able to see this on the top line. It shows uh, the places in the genome where we inserted uh, watermarks. Uh, we wanted to absolutely be sure uh, that we would not uh, fool ourselves or others uh, by having a contaminant of even one molecule of DNA uh, from the native organism. And this can be a fun part of this process. So we have a, a four-letter genetic code. Uh, I'm sure most of you know that uh, we have this triplet code, or three letters of the genetic code, uh, code for uh, our amino acids. And we have roughly 20 amino acids, and there's a single letter uh, code representing each amino acid. Uh, so we can write things in the genetic code uh, using uh, this procedure. Uh, and we use this, in fact, to, uh, to uh, uh, label the DNA, uh, and uh, uh, the team came up with uh, some of the authors of the genetic code in the institution. Uh, we've read that people were very disappointed we didn't put any poetry uh, or other more profound uh, statements like one small step or anything like that, but uh, we'll think about that more carefully uh, for the next time. Uh, so all this went into design uh, started making uh, these pieces. Uh, we put uh, four of these five to 7,000 base pair pieces together to make 24 KB pieces. And at each step, uh, we would grow these pieces up uh, in uh, bacteria E. coli to make large amounts of the DNA that we then sequenced to make sure it was absolutely accurate. Uh, because not only were we trying to make uh, the end product, which we could have done much faster, we were trying to make absolutely robust methods uh, so we would understand if errors uh, crept in where they came from. Uh, we combined uh, the 24 KB pieces to make uh, 72 KB pieces. And the prior world's record uh, for the largest piece of DNA made was around 31,000. So all these pieces at 72,000 uh, greatly exceeded uh, what had been done before. Uh, then we put those together. Uh, this looks like a basketball playoff, perhaps. Uh, to make uh, uh, what we called quarter molecules and half molecules. But what we found is we exceeded the limits of uh, cloning in uh, bacteria, uh, and we switched to another system. Uh, we switched to yeast uh, to put these uh, together and to grow them up. In fact, we had always envisioned that we'd put these pieces together by this process called homologous recombination. Basically, cells in nature do this all the time with repairing their DNA. In fact, this organism, uh, Deinococcus radiodurans, which is pretty ubiquitous on the planet and perhaps elsewhere, uh, can take three million rads of radiation. Its chromosomes get blown apart uh, with a couple hundred uh, little pieces. Then as long as it's in water over 12 to 24 hours, it remakes its chromosome exactly as it was uh, before. So here's an actual picture of it after 1.75 million rads of radiation. I recommend you not try this at home because uh, we as a species can only take a tiny, tiny fraction of this amount of radiation without being killed. We, we can't do this with our uh, human chromosomes. Uh, and so this is a pretty stunning process. It turns out this cell is not unique. We have thousands of species on this planet that can do this. These cells can be totally desiccated. 
they can be dried out, they can be in a vacuum, uh, they can accumulate this ionizing radiation uh, for a very long period of time. We don't actually know how long, uh, but the speculation and calculations we've done is uh, it would certainly fit into the Long Now Foundation because it's tens of thousands to millions of years uh, if the organisms even had slight shielding uh, in a comet uh, or their material. Uh, we know this uh, organism can survive uh, in outer space. Uh, it reaches an aqueous environment and it reassembles its genetic code and it can start replicating again. So w we thought these mechanisms that we're trying to isolate uh, from this organism would be great for assembling the little pieces of the genome uh, to put it back together again. But in fact, uh, we found it was even simpler uh, than that. It turns out yeast, which is used for making bread and beer and wine and all, all these good things we like, can do this on its own uh, with foreign pieces of DNA. So while we were trying to grow up the pieces in yeast, we found that if we designed the pieces correctly and put them in, it would assemble those automatically into the larger pieces into the intact uh, chromosome. So that's how we ended up with the entire 580,000 base pair piece that we sequenced, and it's down to uh, zero errors. This is actually a picture of it. Uh, you don't need an electron microscope because this molecule is so large. Uh, this is just looking at it over a six-second uh, period. Uh, so you can actually see it's a circular <coughs> piece of DNA. Uh, and so it's it pretty <coughs> exciting for us to be able to actually visualize it. Well, how do you boot up a chromosome? Uh, you saw with uh, the virus, all we had to do was insert it in a bacteria, and the bacteria could start reading that software and producing things. Uh, we think it's a little bit more complicated uh, with whole bacterial chromosomes. Initially, we thought we would have to try and remove the chromosome from a bacterial cell and add in this new one to replace it. It turns out that's very hard to do. So what you've heard about with mammalian cloning uh, works very easily in eukaryotes where there's a defined nucleus that's easy just to cut out of a cell under a microscope, lift it out, and put in a nucleus uh, from a different organism or a different cell from the same organism. With bacteria and archaea, uh, there is no nucleus. Uh, the DNA is part of the cytoplasm of the cell, uh, so we have to use a little bit more ingenuity to do this. And, and last year we published what we think is the, the key uh, technique uh, of transplantation. Uh, that's pretty stunning in its own right, because we actually, by putting in a new chromosome into a cell uh, that had a different chromosome in it to start with, we can completely converted one species into another. So it was an absolute 100% uh, transformation. We used two closely related mycoplasma species, roughly the same distance apart as uh, we are uh, to mice. Uh, we isolated the chromosome from uh, this uh, mycoides cell, and we wanted to make sure we could get down to just naked DNA. Uh, chromosomes have a lot of proteins associated with them, so we treated these pretty harshly with digestive enzymes to digest away all the proteins. Uh, and then we added back a few additional genes to this chromosome. Uh, one uh, set of genes, uh, the LAC-Z uh, set, for example, will turn the cells uh, blue, so it makes it easy to identify them. 
We also added in a, a set of uh, selectable markers so we could select for cells just with this transplanted chromosome. And we put this uh, chromosome into uh, a species called a Capricolum. Now, here's a wonderful uh, graphic. I'm sure you'll uh, appreciate the sophistication of this. Uh, we transplanted the chromosome into the cell. Uh, in fact, we thought we would end up with this situation, a cell with two chromosomes in it. We see this all the time in nature. So all these people that make arguments against evolution because we know that you can't just get a point mutation in one piece of DNA unless it's for the wavelength of light your photoreceptor sees, uh, that that's going to change into more complexity. What we see in the real world is we see chromosomes moving around where you can add a thousand new traits to a cell in a second. Uh, cholera, for example, uh, um, most people thought uh, there was no point in decoding the cholera genome because it was very closely related to E. coli. Uh, but when we read the uh, cholera genome, it turns out it didn't have just a, a single chromosome. It had two chromosomes, and it looked like this. They were very different from each other. Obviously, it had taken up a chromosome uh, from another species and added it to its repertoire. Well, we didn't want this situation. Uh, it turns out the uh, Capricolum genome is very unusual in that it doesn't contain any genes for restriction enzymes. Restriction endonucleases are the molecular scissors that cut up uh, DNA, and it's how cells protect themselves from this foreign DNA coming in. In fact, the chromosome that we put in did have a restriction enzyme. Uh, as soon as it was in the cell, it got expressed and it recognized the original chromosome as foreign and cut it up into small pieces and it got digested. So we were left with cells just with the transplanted chromosome. And over a very short period of time, we ended up with these blue cells that all the characteristics of these cells were that what was dictated by the transplanted chromosome. Every protein in the cell changed from that with the original species uh, into that coded by the mycoides chromosome. The membrane changed, everything changed. Uh, we could isolate the DNA, and it was only what we had transplanted in. So this is true identity theft uh, at, at, at the ultimate level. And fortunately, you know, most of us have mechanisms to protect uh, us against this, and, and most cells do with these restriction enzymes but they give us very powerful tools to try and do this in the future. So we know we can take a chromosome, we can transplant it, we can completely convert one species into another. So we're in the process of doing this right now with the uh, synthetically made uh, chromosome. Uh, we hope this will happen very soon. These uh, experiments go very slowly uh, because the uh, cells uh, grow slowly. So it takes about six weeks once you do a transplant uh, to see whether you have uh, viable cells, uh, but we should be seeing that uh, hopefully uh, in the very new, near future. That will complete uh, the, the trilogy that we've been putting together on this, although it's clear now just from the transplant experiment that we know this will work. And to me, it's more of a technicality if it works with synthetically made DNA uh, versus DNA out of a cell because it is the same, it sequences the same but I think it's still important uh, for the proof. 
but it transforms us into a, a, a new era of now being able to alter cells by simply rewriting uh, the genetic code. Um, so the next steps and why. Uh, we, we, I'm going to walk you through quickly the, some of the reasons we're doing this and where we're trying to go. Uh, but a lot of people, when they think about this and write about it, uh, they think we're redoing Genesis. And we're not. Uh, this is much more like a new version of the Cambrian explosion. Uh, we're dependent, uh, as the, the title of this lecture said, on the three and a half billion years of evolution. Uh, also, in, because we're, we're here as humans uh, because of that, and we're using organisms that have evolved over a substantial period of time. What's different is we don't have to redo all that because if we just write new molecular software, we can now start at that point and go in an infinite number of directions. Why do this? Um, one of the reasons is trying to deal uh, with the future of our species on this planet. Uh, over the next 40 years, we're going to go from six and a half to nine billion people. Uh, that's a huge change in a short period of time. To, I, I try to put this data in context for myself and hope that it leads others to be able to understand it. So I was born in 1946. There's now three people on this planet for everybody that existed in 1946. So if you think of having one-third of the number of people in this room, uh, in 40 years it'll be four people for everybody that was on the planet in 1946. Uh, we're having trouble providing uh, food, clean water, uh, energy, uh, housing uh, for the six and a half billion. Uh, we're going to have even more trouble trying to provide it for nine billion people. We're changing our environment quite dramatically uh, by burning uh, billions of years of biology in the form of oil and coal. Uh, this is now uh, from 2003, so uh, you know, over uh, five uh, billion tons of coal, uh, billions of barrels of oil that we just take out and burn and the CO2 goes into the atmosphere. Uh, this slide is out of date. It's, it needs to be changed again the third time in a year. This number is now 4.2 billion tons of CO2 that we're adding and stays in the atmosphere each year. That number is accelerating. Uh, the ocean sink, uh, which is the largest sink, as you can see, that can take hundreds of billions of tons of CO2. Uh, many people think it's saturated. Uh, and deforestation is also contributing as we try and strip more land uh, to make more food and fuel. Uh, everybody has seen this graph and the steady increase in CO2. So what can be done? Uh, there's a dramatic revolution that's taking place in the industrial world, uh, equivalent maybe to the first industrial revolution. Uh, companies like DuPont, which were basically uh, built on using oil as its raw material, ha have now had to switch away from using oil. They're switching to sugar, uh, which maybe won't be any more sustainable, and we'll talk about that in a second. But they spent 10 years and over $100 million altering E. coli to do a simple reaction. 
to take uh, six carbon sugar and make a three carbon propane diol molecule. <clears throat> I don't know if you can see those, uh, it looks like the large beer kegs. Uh, those are actually four 6,000 liter fermenters uh, that they grow up uh, literally uh, 100 tons of this bacteria at a time in a batch and make propane diol uh, from sugar with this engineered uh, bacteria. Uh, they can do this uh, cheaper uh, and faster than they can with chemical conversion uh, with their chemist. This has uh, certain downfalls after each batch. They have to go bury that, uh, uh, those tons of E. coli in a landfill because they're not allowed uh, to burn it. Uh, but even with all these limitations and the cost of sugar, uh, they claim their uh, new polymer that uses this chemical uh, will be the first uh, multi-billion dollar biotech product uh, that's not uh, a pharmaceutical. Uh, so metabolic engineering is being used. Uh, uh, my uh, new company, uh, Synthetic Genomics, has a deal with BP to try and use biology deep in the earth uh, to stop mining coal by biologically converting that coal uh, into methane. Uh, we were quite surprised uh, a mile down in the earth when we took the first sample there was more biological diversity there than we found in the ocean. Just a simple microscopic field was teeming with microorganisms. Uh, this is a piece of coal that we have in the laboratory. All those little uh, tiny uh, uh, things are the uh, bacteria that live off of coal as a substrate. Uh, and uh, we have other bacteria that convert that substrate uh, right into methane. It's a little bit dark, but maybe you can see the methane uh, bubbles uh, coming off the coal in the bottom. Uh, this doesn't stop taking carbon out of the ground, but it's about a tenfold improvement over mining coal and burning it. Uh, and the coal, res coal reserves are uh, extensive enough uh, that this could maybe get us as a stopgap uh, until there's a new uh, economy. But we've been going in the wrong direction already, in part because of uh, lobbies uh, in the government. Uh, corn to ethanol uh, just is not going to get us there. Uh, uh, it's a, a negative carbon balance. Uh, it's been heavily subsidized by all of us. Uh, and the numbers are, are pretty stunning. It looks like a huge amount of ethanol is being produced. Uh, and, and we actually look at the numbers uh, on the order of six billion uh, gallons. Uh, there's now, I think, 160 plants uh, around the country. Six billion gallons sounds like a lot until you look at what we use. Uh, so this is uh, our transportation fuel, 140 billion gallons of gasoline, uh, 45 billion gallons of diesel. So five to six billion gallons of ethanol basically does nothing uh, for this equation. Uh, especially when it uh, uh, produces uh, more CO2 than it uh, captures. Uh, it's competing uh, with farmland. Uh, food prices are going up because of this. Uh, corn prices have doubled uh, in the last uh, year. Uh, so this is just the wrong experiment, uh, taking us uh, very much in the wrong direction. Now, we're not short of energy on this planet. Uh, 120,000 terawatts of energy arrives here uh, uh, each day from the sun. If we could capture that uh, at 1% efficiency, 
We'd only need about 500 million hectares. I've argued this is a great use of Nevada. Uh, uh, and, and nobody's ever argued with it. They haven't come up with a better alternative use. Um, we, we could just from sunlight uh, produce uh, energy. Uh, in fact, deserts uh, and seawater don't compete uh, with food. We're, in fact, working on, I'll show you in a minute, what we're calling a fourth-generation fuel, starting with CO2 as the feedstock. So if we can start with CO2, either from sunlight uh, or in the methanogenesis pathways, uh, we skip all this of use of uh, farmland uh, for producing fuels. Uh, we have two... Uh, fuels that are pretty close to going into test production. We call them second and third generation. Uh, they both have the downfall of using sugar as the starting material, but they're far superior to ethanol. They don't mix with water. They have very low freezing points. Uh, they can just be uh, flash blended. They can go through pipelines. They have a much higher energy uh, density uh, to get people going in a different direction. Uh, but the one that we think we'll have in about 18 months, uh, the fourth generation uh, fuel, starts with CO2 as a feedstock. Now, if we can really use CO2 as a feedstock, it does several things. When you consider the efforts for CO2 sequestration, uh, we can just take piped CO2 uh, into reactors, uh, biological reactors, uh, and make fuels such as octane uh, directly from carbon dioxide either using sunlight as the energy source uh, or molecular hydrogen. You won't see any energy plans uh, incorporating these types of ideas. Uh, we, we go forward uh, by uh, extrapolating uh, from the past, uh, from linear ideas and linear thinking. Uh, there is no planning for disruptive technologies. But in fact, if we're going to change anything in anybody's uh, lifetime here, we need disruptive technologies. Uh, at the Davos meeting this year, the conclusion was uh, 40 years from now, uh, biology and all alternate energy sources uh, will maybe only make a few percent impact on using oil and coal because there's so much vested interest. There's a new coal uh, powered, uh, uh, fueled power plant coming online every day. These cost billions of dollars to build. So it's only if there's an economically uh, viable alternative that doesn't compete with food uh, that has a chance to change anything in the near future. Uh, and I don't think we want to keep adding uh, indefinitely uh, CO2 to the atmosphere. So. We have 10 million genes in the databases right now. We're going to double that number again this year from the Sorcerer Expedition to 20 million. These are our design components. The entire electronics industry only had a few handfuls of design components. And look at the diversity uh, that we have there. We have tens of millions of starting components that we can build. <coughs> and now we've built a robot that instead of making one chromosome uh, per four years, we think we can get up to making thousands to millions of them a day and in random combinations. So we're calling this new field combinatorial genomics. Uh, so we're just thinking of it. If we can basically start with design 
take these tens of millions of design components, just make the DNA, uh, transform that automatically into yeast or some other vector, and screen for chemical production, uh, for octane production, for antibody production. Whatever you screen for will be the selection that happens. Uh, it will change the pace of biology uh, in unimaginable ways, uh, just like I don't think anybody could imagine in the 1950s, uh, this computer, this a laptop computer with close to a terabyte uh, of, of storage on it, um, uh, doing more than giant rooms could. Uh, this is a new area that's going to be driven uh, by people's imagination. This is sort of a uh, software that we're working on to make the new software, uh, thinking of this as a true design phase, uh, trying to come up with new fuels, new chemicals. Uh, and so it's an exciting uh, time uh, as we try uh, to scale this up uh, with remarkably small teams. This is a different aspect of industrial revolution and that it doesn't take armies of thousands. In fact, that's what we've done from the beginning with reading the genetic code. Uh, the yeast genome took uh, 10 years and 1,000 scientists. We reduced that project first to four months uh, and now to hours, uh, and we're doing the same thing now going in the other direction. It, it's clear we'll be able to have a huge dent in the first bullet here of increasing the understanding of life because we need to use empirical methods uh, with the huge data sets that we have. There's not enough scientists uh, to ask reasonable questions uh, to work out the biology of what's been discovered to date. Uh, but I'm more optimistic. I'm hoping within uh, 15 to 20 years, we can really have gone a long way for replacing the petrochemical industry. Hopefully, biology will be a major source of energy. And bioremediation, if we can capture back CO2 and recycle that into fuel, uh, we possibly even start to undo some of the damage uh, that we've been doing uh, for the last 100 years. And we're also looking at this in terms of every type of chemical and looking at making, for example, combinatorial antibodies uh, so we can have instant vaccines uh, for every variant of the flu virus, uh, for example, uh, instead of being a year late uh, like we are again uh, this year. Uh, this field is unusual, and this is my last slide, uh, by the way. Um, it started with us asking the ethical questions before we did the first experiments, not after we thought, uh, gee whiz, uh, we have a lot of potential here. Uh, the results of this uh, team at the University of Pennsylvania uh, published their review in 1999. Uh, they thought we were proceeding with the right questions and the right technology. Uh, there was a caveat about being concerned about biological warfare. Uh, the Sloan Foundation has just funded my institute and uh, MIT for the last couple of years to do a complete review of, of the risk and the benefits. Uh, they got published at the end of uh, last year. Uh, and there's ongoing discussions, a new uh, body in the federal government got formed uh, when we published the IX-174 genome. Uh, it got reviewed at the White House. They had to decide whether to try and make uh, our data and processes secret or published in the open literature. 
I think it's one of the few good things that the Bush administration has done in science as they went and opted for open publication. Uh, but they formed a new branch executive uh, committee that in, has people from every branch of, uh, of, of the government reviewing this type of work. Uh, we've had public discussion ongoing basically since 1996 on this. We're trying to take it one step at a time, uh, but it's about to expand in an exponential fashion. Uh, and I think it's going to be an exciting next 10,000 years. Thank you very much. <clears throat> or 10,000 hours, whatever comes first. Am I alive on the mic? Great. I had a question before I get into ones from. Thank you, everybody. Um, how do you decide what to work on next? Uh, I mean, the instrumentation keeps coming along, new tools keep coming along. Do they push you into new opportunity areas? Or do you work back from kind of the most important threshold type needs that you see in human affairs and work back from them as to what you do or something else? Well, it's much more the latter. We, we try to ask the big questions and we try to drive the development of the technology so we'll have the tools to try and ask some of those. I mean, it, it'd be wonderful now if we could sequence a human genome for $1,000 in a few minutes. Uh, well, but I, what, I think we're creating we the need that? for that and, and driving that forward. So. Mm -hmm. The same with these tools. It's taken a long time to develop the synthetic capabilities uh, for DNA. Uh, the next stage is now that we have these robots uh, are going to take us order of magnitude uh, further. So it's the, the, the ideas and the directions are driving the technology formation. Here's a question from Pam Strayer. Where are you? Wave your hand. Hey. Um, if you were advising a 16 or 20-year-old on what to, what to study to be part of the next generation of health and science, what advice would you give them, and what new kinds of careers do you see coming out? Well, I think one of the exciting things about what we've done and maybe why a small group has been successful is, is there's, uh, we, we have truly multidisciplinary teams. Some of the biggest breakthroughs we have have been in mathematics, uh, new algorithm development, uh, new computer uh, computational approaches. Uh, obviously, the uh, tools that uh, uh, my friend and colleague Ham Smith and Clyde Hutchinson have developed in, in terms of cloning and manipulating DNA, uh, just straight engineering. I, there is no field of science that is not applicable to this. Uh, e even astronomy, uh, you know, my, my most exciting uh, a uh, new number uh, that comes out of astronomy is in our own galaxy, we have 100,000 Earth and super-Earth planets all likely uh, to be in that sweet zone that could be compatible with life. That's just in our galaxy. Uh, so when we think about the ubiquitous nature of life, uh, we're pretty silly to constantly think it centers around human existence. What's your bet on whether life is going back and forth uh, between Earth and Mars and other places? Well, it's, it's definitely being exchanged. Uh, where it originated, we don't know. There's roughly 200 kilograms of material exchanged between Earth and Mars each year. Uh, if that's not carrying organisms like Deinococcus and other things that can easily survive, 
uh, I will be the most surprised person on this planet. Uh, so I know we'll find uh, uh, indications of life on Mars. Uh, it could be just because we've contaminated it. Uh, but it's possible it's contaminating Earth with a different set. We only know about 1% of life on our own planet, so we have a ways to go to understand that. Well, you're, as I understand it, starting to uh, sample shotgun sequence whole populations in the air and all the way up to the stratosphere. Yeah. What do you find as you get farther and farther out from the surface? Well, we're still working on the, the data on the higher levels, but uh, perhaps the most exciting thing is we're starting to look at the... Uh, uh, the gels uh, with space dust, because we have techniques now where we can amplify from a single molecule of DNA. Uh, and there's nothing more indicative, uh, indic indicative of uh, life somewhere else than uh, large uh, macromolecules of DNA. So uh, I don't know if from the gels we'll be able to find any, but we're looking for the first time. Uh, but I think uh, just uh, we, we've talked about setting up sampling uh, arrays on the space station. Um, we've contaminated near-Earth space pretty extensively, not just with junk, but with microorganisms to an extreme. I think the, the most exciting story, uh, my, my brother is here, works with NASA, he sent it to me, I'll probably get him in trouble for telling this story, but that next time you see a shooting star, um, that, so in the space station, they used to just pump out uh, the commodes into space. Uh, and they, they realized they were really contaminating space. So now they pack them into the, the, the waste material into stainless steel containers and launch it back into orbit. And so uh, when you see a shooting star, uh, that, that's, that's good shit from space, man. <laughs> was, uh, was uh, Rusty Schweikert, one of the astronauts. He said that when he was in orbit, uh, one of the most beautiful things you see in orbit is what they call a urine dump at sunset. <laughs> it sprays out, and of course, the sun blasts into it, and the Earth is dark below, and it's quite gorgeous. They don't do that either. Well, unless they have disease, the urine should be sterile. But, uh... The urine should be sterile. We were taught in the Army to use it as a... Uh, as a on wounds, right? Because it's, it's so sterile you can wash wounds. Didn't you do that in Vietnam? Uh, no, I was in the Navy. We had better techniques. <laughs> More expensive. <laughs> we always save money in the Army. Um, here's a question from Tyler Emerson. Were you against the publication of the 1918 influence of flu genome uh, or for it? Uh, why or why not? I remember Bill Joy yep. and... One of our other speakers, Ray Kurzweil, were ferociously against that. Yeah. It, it, was, it was absolutely the right thing to do, and here's why. Looking at that sequence, it was not obvious, even though comparing it to uh, my institute is uh, one of two major institutions sequencing most of the viral isolates from around the world. We could not tell, looking at the 1980 flu sequence, why it was so virulent. Mm -hmm. And we didn't also know how to make uh, the right vaccines against it. So not only publishing it was the right thing, I think the, uh, this new committee in the government approving it to be made through these synthetic genomic processes at the CDC, it's actually the first true Jurassic Park scenario because it was RNA isolated uh, uh, from a soldier that had died in 1918 and also a woman that was buried in the permafrost. The RNA still exists in her lungs. Uh, the RNA was sequenced and the virus regenerated in the laboratory 
uh, we now know what parts of the virus uh, lead to its extreme uh, lethalness, and we can now screen for that, and also new vaccines are being designed against that. So it's uh, probably going to be one of the most important breakthroughs in uh, at least flu virus virology. Uh, I, I think Killjoy and others that really worry about these things, you know, <laughs> just, just, just take the wrong approach. And, you know, you know he, he's now funding all kinds of companies to do the same thing. So it's, uh... Larry Brilliant and Google.org and, and the guys who are paying close attention to where uh, trying to hit off the next pandemic. And, uh, you know, the, the mantra there is early detection, early response. Is this stuff going to help early detection? Can we do monitoring much closer to the ground so that the detection of a pandemic doesn't begin with dead nurses in a hospital somewhere? Reading the genetic code certainly can. Um, it's still amazing, though. I mentioned some of the issues with just doing scientific sampling around the world. There's a number of countries, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia and uh, even uh, China and Russia to some extent, that don't want the world to know how much flu they have. Uh, it's hard to get the samples out. Um, so quite often you hear more, first about people dying mm -hmm. uh, than getting the samples. So uh, uh, the technology is there. Uh, you know, if it was set up around the world, it would be easy to get instant detection. Uh, the problem is the political problem that I just mentioned and air transportation. Uh, we saw how fast SARS moved from Singapore to Toronto. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, SARS is not anywhere near as virulent as, as uh, the flu virus. Uh, so we need to step up the surveillance. But I actually think the synthetic genomic techniques that we have are what's going to create vaccines in time. We're a year late and a dollar short right now. Mm -hmm. um, so if this was a really virulent virus right now, we'd be in serious difficulty. Uh, the vaccine is only, what, 40% effective. Uh, there's just not time with the slow processes from even knowing what the current virus is to getting the vaccine in time. So we need to change that dramatically. So instant virus means this week or this month or this hour? What, how fast can I, you I, do I, that? I mean, it could be done uh, in, in Instant that. vaccine, sorry. Well, the, the vaccine part needs to be proven in terms of the detection. Uh, we can sequence uh, hundreds to thousands of isolates in a day uh, if we have the material. The, the rate-limiting step is getting the viral isolates from different countries right now. The vaccine side needs to be tested and, and you know, funded, built at a, at a scale to see if it can be done fast enough. Question from uh, Laura from the Long Nath Foundation. Um, you've been report telling us about an incredible richness of really planetary-scale biodiversity here. So, should we still give a hoot about the spotted owl? <laughs> well, people care more, apparently, about species that they can see with their own visual acuity uh, than this extreme diversity that we have in the invisible world. Uh, if you look at even modern textbooks in biology, they list diversity as mostly accounting things that we can see with our own eyes, not things that you need a microscope or a, a, a DNA sequencer to see and detect. Um, we, we have all kinds of unique varieties of multicellular 
uh, birds and mammals uh, that I think are worth protecting. Uh, a lot of them going out of you know out of existence pretty quickly uh, with what we as we change the environment pretty dramatically. How would uh, this technology help that process of, of preserving them? Well, I'm not sure it's going to help the spotted owl, but it certainly. Uh, instead of having a canary in a coal mine, we have tens of thousands of organisms. For example, had we taken the samples out of San Francisco Bay before the oil spill, mm -hmm. uh, we could have told you exactly what changed as a result of that oil spill and how long it really took that to recover in terms of the biology that's there. So that's what we've tried to do on a global basis is get samples from the major coral reefs, uh, you know, everybody loves uh, the, the the beautiful sandy beaches in the, uh, in the Indian Ocean and uh, other parts of the world. Th these are a result of coral reefs dying. Um, mm -hmm. Just a few degree temperature change usually ends up killing coral reefs. Many people think it's because it's killing the symbiotic bacteria uh, that mm -hmm. can't deal with the temperature changes. But uh, we now have the first measurements to at least try try to do that, uh, to track these. So it's uh, it's it, it could be the ultimate environmental impact statement to see what is changing. Um, it's probably good for uh, offshore oil wells to really measure what's happening there. Uh, perhaps these uh, people that think they can get CO2 credits by seeding the oceans with iron. Uh, most of us think those are some of those most dangerous experiments being done on the planet right now. Hmm, say uh, more about that. Why is that? Well, the, the, the indications are it could cause irreversible damage to the ocean. Uh, and anything that has even a slight risk of that, you know, why are we, why are we doing that? So a few groups can make money off of it. It's, it's, it's just an insane experiment. Uh, <clears throat> One wants you to go along on that expedition to uh, sample what happens before and after the iron uh, yeah. seeding. Well, what happens, so iron is a limiting nutrient, so you sprinkle a little iron on, you get huge algae broom, blooms. Mm -hmm. uh, then the algae dives off and presumably uh, sinks down in the ocean and, right. and you get more, but it, it's going to deplete a lot of other nutrients. Uh, we have a problem off the West Coast, particularly off of Oregon. There's these huge dead zones now, mm -hmm. uh, no oxygen whatsoever. So uh, fish mammals swim into there. They, they basically uh, die from uh, asphyxiation. Uh, whatever well, that was caused by wind, not by iron. By wind? Yeah, it's changed the upwelling uh, did, pattern. Did, yeah. did, did Ronald Reagan say that? No. <laughs> uh, the, the, the scientists in Oregon said that. <laughs> Changing wind will be its, its own, uh, maybe that'll happen with all this wind generation. Um, lots of people are using antibiotics in uh, their personal life, in the bathroom, in the kitchen, uh, they, they head off all those germs. Um, from what you're saying, there's no hope. <laughs> well, not only no hope, I mean, if, the worst thing for us as a species is to try and live in a sterile environment. Okay. Uh, bacteria are a key part of our physiology. Um, so uh, I think the notion uh, that you can never escape bacteria, you know, of the tens, maybe hundreds of millions of species on this planet, most of them don't care about us. But mm -hmm. there's only a few handfuls that uh, truly infect uh, humans. Even the ones that, uh, you know, share our bodies, uh, most of those are not pathogens. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not understood at all the thresholds that change when all of a sudden 
uh, bacteria we have associated with us start causing disease, uh, but very few of them do. Uh, the trouble with these, uh, the chemical killers kill the whole spectrum uh, of life um, and leads to major mutations. Uh, that's why we now have, you know, I think when you think about new emerging infections, uh, the new completely antibiotic resistant Staph aureus, mm -hmm. it's now killed more people in this last year than HIV in the U.S. Um, it's due just to over-application of antibiotics. I'm not sure whether it's, you contribute any of it to people trying to sterilize their bathrooms or their hands, uh, but it's certainly to the widespread use of uh, antibiotics in, in the medical community. Uh, it's not clear how uh, rapidly uh, that could spread. Um, you know, if you're not near death, you don't want to go to a hospital right now um, because you have a higher chance of getting a Staph aureus infection in the hospital than you do anyplace else. So it's, uh, um, Does your technology have a workaround for that? Um, not right now. I mean, we can try combinatorial production of new uh, antibiotics. We have this huge chemical diversity in the ocean that really has not been sampled. Most of the chemicals that bacteria produce are to kill other bacteria. Right. Uh, there, there's some organisms that we have that actually produce diesel fuel-like materials. They actually smell like diesel fuel, using that as an antibiotic uh, around them. So we, we've probably sampled, uh, you know, one millionth of the antibiotics that are available in the environment uh, that could be used. Um, there's a complete disincentive in the pharmaceutical industry to make antibiotics and antivirals. Um, companies would far rather treat chronic diseases because they can make a much higher profit than treating acute diseases. So companies like Eli Lilly completely shut down their antibiotic uh, department. Mm -hmm. uh, we hired some good people out of that, but you know that, that, that's, that, that's helping some areas. But it's, uh, we're going the opposite direction right now when we need new antivirals and new antibiotics more than ever. So that sounds like one of the career directions to speak to the earlier question. So, you know, people are going through the jungles of the world looking for wonderful secondary metabolites that will be useful against cancer and things like this. It sounds like you're saying that the uh, oceans may be even a better place to collect. I don't know if it's better, but it's, uh, it's largely untapped. Uh, the chemical complexity uh, far exceeds what our chemists can make right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, the new biology, synthetic biology, gives a chance to replicate uh, and change that because we can just take the gene pathways, uh, put them in cells, and make the chemicals in the lab. And so a number of people now are thinking about taking these pathways out of all the organisms that we've discovered uh, and just making whole new sets of molecules that just greatly exceed the complexity of what we're currently using. Uh, because you can't make them chemically in the lab. So I think there's, there's a lot to choose from. Uh, it's a question, who's going to do it? Uh, who's going to pay for it? Uh, is there the incentives and the, the, the ability uh, to even get stuff out of the market? It's, it's a huge hurdle. Um, and I think maybe that's why the, the pharmaceutical industry is going for much higher profit uh, molecules uh, than antibiotics and antivirals. When you speak to people in that industry, or the other day when you were speaking to people in the oil industry, what do you talk, 
to them about? Do you say this kind of stuff? Or yeah. What did you say to the oil guys? Uh, I told them that, they, uh, that disruptive technologies were coming uh, and that they not only need to prepare for it but contribute to it uh, to help it come faster. So they're part of the solution, uh, not just part of the problem. They're clapping. Did those guys clap? I, 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 it was a good response. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I got out of there alive. So. <laughs> good sign. You were inveighing a, a moment ago against uh, ballast swapping, that you know, vast quantities of ocean bacteria are picked up in one seething part of the world and released into another seething part of the world mm -hmm. and swapped back and forth. Do you see this as inherently harmful or, or what? It, it, it's hard to know because it, it's been going on for so many years it's certainly harmful when you get things like zebra butt mussel uh, larvae, and you know that, that's, that's a huge impact in areas. Right. Um, it's not clear whether all these new species uh, in uh, on the east coast are, are from that or just people emptying out their aquariums. Um, you know, there's a certain selectivity with these organisms. Uh, based on things such as sunlight, as I gave you an example of, it, it's not clear what happens and how much it changes the environment. Uh, nobody's measured it before, so uh, whether it's contributing to uh, uh, more diversity or less diversity, uh, we know over and over again when you get an imbalance, new viruses appearing in an environment that weren't there before, uh, new organisms that uh, become dominant, uh, it has a pretty catastrophic uh, response. Look at all the oyster industries around, you know, the Chesapeake Bay used to be a huge oyster industry. San Francisco Bay used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, there's now viruses that have wiped out all the oysters. Maybe it came from, nobody knows where they came from or even what they are right now. You know, it, it seems like a, a silly experiment to do. And now most ships change their ballast water sort of... Uh, progressively as they cross uh, oceans. Hmm. Uh, they also dump all their oil and things out too. But uh. It sounds to me like you know, my fellow environmentalists should be jamming ahead in some of the technology you're talking about to, or monitoring for all these various things, doing diagnostics like you were able to tell just by looking at the population of genes in a particular sample what part of the world it came from, what mm -hmm. kind of water it came from. Mm -hmm. So presumably the same kind of things will go on with human cavities and all the rest of it. Yep. Not only be able to tell who, but what their problems are and all the rest of it. Well, you can also tell where people have come from. Uh, it's been shown, for example, as we send soldiers to the desert, in a very short time in the desert, all the bugs in their oral cavity uh, swap out to what's in that local environment. Uh, nobody really knows what impact that has on long-term health or disease, and uh, it, as this happens, and, and the environments get changed again. So uh, there are certain branches of our government that are using this information to try and uh, track people. Um, uh, I, I, I was asked if, I, uh, if we could use these techniques to uh, uh, track bin Laden by uh, finding his DNA in sewer water. Um, <laughs> I, I, I said I was not the right guy to do that experiment. So, so. Trust me, there are others who would be glad to do it. And it's done a lot with animals, by the way. With a scat, you can tell a whole That's lot right. about you know, where they were, what they do, what they eat, all the rest yeah. of it. And presumably that will increase with this. 
But also my fellow environmentalists are uh, highly dubious about uh, genetic modification in foods and cotton and crops and things like that. What's your view on that? Well, I think uh, you know it, it's hard to be right all the time in each area. It's uh, you know we have a dramatically changing environment that it, it's really hard to realize. You know, we we all like to think uh, life is nice and simple as we've uh, each of us have, have known it, um, and that's why I try to use the number about the population and trying to you know personalize it. Uh, it's a very different world changing within a single lifetime. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned that in your introduction. Uh, we have to find a way to cope with the soon to be nine billion people. Uh, you know, the, the environment is changing. Uh, if we don't do it intelligently, people are just gonna do uh, slash and burn to grow whatever is the most profitable uh, crop, either to provide fuel or food uh, for their populations. Uh, that's what we see happening right now. So. Uh, I, I think environmentalists should be the first to embrace these new technologies, uh, not be uh, lining up to try and stop them. Um, it's going to take, uh, I think, a little bit more thinking on the part of numerous groups uh, to make that transition. Well, there's a question, and people say, okay, a fish gene in a tomato is just too weird. And, and that, well, that's but, not but, Darwinian. And, and it, but tomatoes a, are not Darwinian uh, in the sense not? that... Uh, uh, you know, people fight for eating their natural tomatoes. You know, natural tomatoes, a small green thing about the size of my thumb that's non-edible, it's really bitter. So we've been doing selection of species on this planet for a long time. And what most people think is natural has been engineered usually blindly. Uh, you know, now that we know about the genetic code in the genome, if people are going to propose, let's just randomly mix these genomes together from these diverse species, let's see what we get. Uh, it's called agriculture. It's what everybody ate before coming here tonight. Uh, so, so I think we need to put it in the context of what the reality has been going on in the last century uh, of randomly mixing uh, plant, animal, bacterial organisms together. So w what's so unnatural about a fish gene and a tomato? Uh, both those genes exist in your genome anyway. So one of the things I'm getting from you and from... Hawkins and others working in this field is that genes themselves are pretty migratory. They wander from genome to genome, and species to species, and genus to genus, and all over the place. Is this your sense of things? Well, in fact, I, uh, I was on a recent program with Richard Dawkins, and I told him that I've begun to think of the world totally in a gene-centric point of view, mm -hmm. uh, that genomes are just unique uh, combinations of those. There's basically an infinite number of combinations. We, we know uh, a few of them. Uh, we see the big ones, as I mentioned, uh, with our own visual acuity. Uh, we have another uh, several million, if not tens of millions, to discover uh, on this planet. And if we use them as design components going forward, we can really harness that information uh, to do something unique. Um, you know, the genome structure is important. Regulation is very important. When we go from single-cell organisms to having 100 trillion cells, there's a lot of key regulation that does go on. Uh, we're a long way from mimicking that, uh, but we're using these tools to try and understand it. Uh, to, you know, I think the sooner we understand it, the better chance we have of surviving here. You want to move on up the 
complexity chain into eukaryotes and bigger animals in terms of... Uh, I think it's essential. You know, as you know, when you talk about uh, a long now futures, uh, many people have argued uh, humans have two chances for survival. Let's find another planet to go contaminate uh, uh, and, and move there, uh, or let's engineer humans to survive in higher CO2 concentrations or altered biology so we can survive on the mess we're making here. Uh, those are the two long-term current views that many people hold for humanity. Uh, I'd like to think we have a third alternative of trying to change the environment before we get to that point. Uh, but certainly engineering, uh, if you th apply design theory to plants, and you just design a plant for a specific purpose that will live in an arid environment, need very little water, maybe even live off of uh, salt water, uh, and produce useful... Uh, feedstocks for fuels uh, or food, uh, that could be a pretty nice thing, designed in disease resistance, uh, uh, the kind of replication you want, etc. You know, we are living machines. Uh, we are designable. Uh, and I think it will be, in the time course that your foundation looks at, it will be inevitable to engineer humans. Great question, Bill. Um, two more questions. One from J.D. Ross Leahy. Uh, you use a lot of computer metaphors in your explanations, booted up, software, hardware. What do you see as the main similarities and the main differences between computer programs and the organisms you work with? Well, we don't have too many computers yet that can build their own hardware from their software. So I think dynamic, you know, some people are hoping to get there. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're partway there in some assembly lines. Uh, biological systems can do this very dynamically. Um, uh, you can actually build the computer from the software. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's uh, it's, a, it's an important difference, at least for now. Um, I, I think the microorganisms, for example, can uh, produce things on scale, uh, copies of themselves on scale that can be uh, used for industrial purposes. Uh, when you look at landfills, obviously we're producing computers on some sort of scale, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, not necessarily to, to solve uh, directly uh, manufacturing problems. Um, computer can process information. The biological software, the biological computer can produce food, fuel, chemicals, uh, who knows what. Uh, we, you know, plastics can be produced biologically uh, off of plants. Uh, I think as we start down this road, even coming back to talk a, a decade from now and looking mm -hmm. at the, all the things that people are trying to do through biological engineering will be pretty dramatic. If you look a thousand years from now, <laughs> we probably wouldn't recognize uh, anything because it could all be biological machines, including computers. What? I guess there's another comparison that's often made between computer technology and biotechnology is the, the pace of self-acceleration that goes on. So Moore's Law um, doubling its capability every year and a half or so. <clears throat> People like Rob Carlson say that the pace of advance in biotechnology right now is faster than that. One, is that your sense of things, and is it continuing to accelerate, and does that S-curve ever level off, or is it pretty indefinite? 
Well, I had a fun discussion with Gordon Moore because uh, uh, I, I argued that uh, DNA sequencing, reading the genetic code, biology was changing faster than Moore's law. Right. Uh, but he said, you're dependent on computers, so Moore's law always trumps Venter's law. <laughs> Until we get biocomputers, and then that trumps that, so yeah. then, or quantum computers yeah. or something. I, I think it's, it, it's sort of like the stages of evolution of, you know, we have this three and a half billion years behind us. It's not going to take, you know, even possibly decades to mimic what happened over billions of years and go dramatically further. So I think we're at a, we're at a sharp turning point in biological systems as we can go just straight from digital code mm -hmm. uh, to biological code and harness that power to do new things. I, I think that's going to totally change the future shape of humanity, hopefully the future existence of humanity. Uh, but I think it's going to be a very sharp divide uh, from the previous three and a half billion years. Well, that sort of raises the question of why you talk to audiences like this. We were just telling me backstage you give about 150 talks a year. That's quite a lot for a still very busy scientist. Mm -hmm. um, and so every time you're out doing this, you're not in the lab. <laughs> uh, you're not raising another round of money or, right. or applying another round of money. You're, you're not uh, doing the research you might want to be doing and catching up with other people's work. Uh, why put this much time into basically public discourse? Well, we've seen over and over again new ideas, new disruptive technologies really being either killed or set back dramatically. I, I think Jim, you, your, your environmental friends talking about GMOs uh, that has certainly uh, set back uh, a lot of an agricultural revolution. Um, you know, the whole thing was handled badly all the way around in terms of uh, government regulation. There wasn't enough of it. There wasn't enough scientific testing to really work out what happened. And, and a lot of these genes, as, as we talked about, do hop around in the environment and they can move. There wasn't enough thought given to that. Uh, but. Uh, several years ago, I was meeting with the head of the German Green Party, uh, and I said, when you put that you're either for or against biotechnology or for or against GMOs, I'll always come down on the for side, but if you try to have an intelligent discussion about how it should be done, uh, it should have been done very differently with a lot more testing, a lot more thought, and a lot more regulation. I think as we go into a much more dramatic phase of actually designing biology originally from scratch, possibly, uh, as it scales up, uh, if the public is not thinking about it, if the government's not thinking about it uh, in the lines of what it can do and what it can't do, uh, this whole area could get killed off uh, just as fast as GMOs have or set back substantially. Uh, I would like, as, as I argued at Davos, that uh, you know, we need to try and change something in the next 40 years. In uh, these arguments that, that it's going to be almost impossible to change anything, the only hope there is is, is for disruptive technology. Uh, I see biology as one of the few areas that really has a chance to be a disruptive technology in the fuel production, uh, CO2 capture. Um, 
we don't want people to be scared away for the same reason that uh, uh, French farmers tried to shut down GMOs, either because of an economic argument. So we're seeing a little bit of an economic argument with the corn to ethanol uh, uh, being, mm-hmm. you know, appropriately attacked, but. Uh, people want to throw out all biofuels now because corn to ethanol is a lousy experiment. Right. You know, th- these are dangerous times that uh, I think technologies have to be part of people's repertoire. It is no longer an option for, sci- for society not to be dependent on high-end science. Uh, we, if we're going to survive as a species long-term, if we're going to if your foundation is going to exist in 10,000 or a million years, uh, million, or people will, um, you know, we have to do something very different very soon. Well, it's okay. You're talking to lots of audiences, large one here and even larger one on the other side of the television camera. So it looks like you're looking for understanding from these audiences. You're looking for a kind of uh, permission and even encouragement from these audiences. With computer technology, uh, the technology went totally democratic. Anybody could do it. I assume uh, once you have the $1,000 genome and other tools like that, which are uh, fast, cheap, they will also be fast, cheap, and out of control. Yep. And so there will be biotech hackers. And there will be uh, people in, involved in national security who will freak out that prospect, uh, probably with reason. Uh, Kill Joy will freak out. That. Uh, Ray Kurzweil. Well, he better stop funding all the yeah, I won't know what to do about that. that. But it's coming. Yeah. So uh, garage biotech, uh, threat, menace, promise, delight, what is it? Well, there are some people in, in these, this new broad field of synthetic biology, not synthetic genomics, but synthetic biology that are encouraging biohacking. And, mm-hmm. uh, and to some extent, that, that is inevitable. The, the techniques and tools require a little bit more sophistication uh, for building uh, genomes and species. But it will become largely democratic. We, we want everybody to have their genome sequenced uh, understanding that is the only way we're going to lower health care costs, getting into preventative medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know that uh, firsthand. My uh, wife's in the business. That, that's right. Uh, uh, so uh, she, she's been pushing this longer than, than most. The world's slowly catching up with her. Uh, so we, we want to get to that, that phase in medicine. We, we want people to think in terms of DNA, what it means and what it doesn't mean. Okay, so you not only want their permission, you want their cheek swabs. Well, I don't personally want them, but... Uh, <laughs> but there's yeah. plenty you do. You know, uh, and once that's out there, then that database of humanity is uh, baseline data. It's uh, all these things you've been talking about, understanding who we are, what's going on, right. what we're supposed to do with that knowledge. Yep. Uh, and I think that there'll be two surprises on the human side. I think we'll be surprised, uh, and I've written that with uh, John Brockman's Edge, that we'll be surprised how much of a genetic species we are. Uh, and we'll Wait, what does that mean? That uh, most, if not all, human characteristics and traits have a genetic component. Uh, and, you know, most parents realize this. They, they see their kids and uh, realize that uh, they have unique personalities from day one. Right. Um, they, they don't want to acknowledge necessarily that's due to genetics, uh, depending on the parents. Um, 
and depending on the personality, but um, we, we are very genetic organisms. Uh, but also at the same time, we are a very plastic species, meaning we're very moldable depending on our environment. So to some extent, knowing what you're at risk for will help with preventative medicine and disease. In terms of the sociology, uh, I think uh, it probably won't matter that much because the environment is so important for us. But we will find out, and we'll find out on a broad scale. What I'm worried about with a lot of the, the startup companies that are measuring incomplete information is that we'll just get wrong answers for quite a while before we have the complete information. But uh, eventually, science trumps ignorance. Uh, depends on how hard the, the equation is. Um, you know, the internet could help or hurt with that issue. <laughs> well, we should call it an evening. Keep the science coming, and we'll keep interneting uh, at your science and uh, help every way we can. Thank Great. you. Great. Thank you. Some of you, uh, you want to get a, a book that you got outside signed by Craig, he'll hang around for a minute and sign a few books if you like. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.